Our first scripture reading this morning is from the 8th chapter of the letter of Paul to the Romans, found on page 147 in the New Testament of your Pew Bible. Romans 8, 6-11. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give you life to your mortal bodies, also through the Spirit that dwells in you. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. gospel lesson this morning comes from the 11th chapter of the gospel according to John. It's a kind of lengthy passage, but we want to tell the whole story this morning. So we're going to start with Genesis 1-1 and read through Revelation. No, 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 the whole story of Lazarus which contains the shortest verse. I don't know if you knew that. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be okay. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? If you said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up and go out, and they followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because it has been four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Give our hearts an openness to your call to call us out of our own weakness and mortality into your love and life eternal. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I double-checked my records and wanted to just uh, highlight that these words that I share today after 34 years of ordained ministry include my officiating at 648 memorials or funerals. The technical difference between a memorial service and a funeral, by the way, is whether or not the guest of honor is present. If there are cremains or an embalmed body or the guest is there, that's a funeral. If they've already been interred or if they're elsewhere, that's a memorial. Using that distinction, there have been a few occasions when I've actually been called upon to do a funeral, but it turned out that it was a memorial. Uh, there was one occasion in which UPS had lost the cremains in shipping. But the family had gathered for what they thought was the funeral, and so the funeral director shrewdly took a, a sample urn and set it in the flowers of the focal point, and we conducted the service as if the guest of honor were there, but nobody was the wiser except for the family that knew that somewhere UPS had that box. 
The son of the deceased did call customer service with UPS and explain to them the situation that a package had been lost and he had the tracking number and after a delay the person came back and said we cannot find that tracking number anywhere in our records but you did insure the package please know UPS would be more than interested in replacing its contents. <laughs> Upon explaining to the customer service representative what the contents of that package happened to be a box arrived two days later and it was indeed the formerly lost package. It uh, was then a few days later that the family very, very quietly gathered for a graveside service for the interment of the actual cremains. Uh, for future reference, just a piece of information you may be able to use. Uh, United States Postal Service is the only carrier in the country authorized to deliver cremains of loved ones. Uh, don't use DSL, don't use FedEx, don't use UPS. Use United States Postal Service Ask for form number 139, the shipping of cremained remains. It'll have a large 4x6 orange sticker that says exactly that on it, so that even the post office can't lose it. And it is personally carried and stewarded from your drop-off until the place where it is to be delivered. By the way, you need to sign for it because uh, porch pirates don't need that kind of surprise. I guess when you're in the ministry, as long as I have been, you learn a few things. And I think I've learned a little bit about loss and mourning. And perhaps the most consistent thing that I've learned is when you lose a loved one is that your theology has little or nothing to do with your level of sorrow. Your theology has little or nothing to do with your sorrow. Yes, there is comfort in the knowledge that we shall see the departed again in that sweet by and by when we join on that beautiful shore. But mourning and grief and sorrow is about today, not about eternity. And it's not a lack of faith that makes us feel the pain of losing a loved one. And there's no amount of Christian education at a funeral that is going to shut down the grief that we feel. Jesus learned that when talking to Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus died. Both of them were kind of angry at Jesus. They both said, Martha first, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Mary, a few minutes later, makes exactly the same accusation. It's not like they didn't give Jesus enough time. They let him know four and a half days ago that his friend was sick, but no, he hung out for a couple of days to make a two-day trip, and he lollygagged so that by the time he gets there, Lazarus has already died and has been buried. Certainly it's reasonable for those who are around them to say, if he could open the eyes of a blind man, certainly he could have bothered to save his friend. And in response, Martha, Jesus gives a wonderful lesson in Christian education. In fact, I start almost all of my funeral and memorial services with Jesus' own words. They're in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, they shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. But trust me. When you're in the middle of grief, it's hard to hear 
theological insight. Jesus himself offered the most important theological statement about eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life, and you don't really die, and those that die are actually going to live. And the people just keep on a-weeping and a-wailing, as if he'd said nothing at all. And that's why we get the shortest verse in the Bible, as Chris pointed out. Fortunately, I carefully reread the text. Because the first time I read it, I thought it was going to be a sermon about cleanliness, because Jesus, because Jesus swept. But it turns out that, that's not the verse. That was the way I memorized it as a kid. Jesus encounters a depth of sorrow over the loss of his friend. And in verse 35, we read Jesus wept. So the lesson in here, I think, is that we need to know we should not try to shut down someone else's anguish by throwing Bible verses at them. It didn't work for Jesus, and it's not going to work for you. In fact, when somebody's trying to console another by attempting to diminish or move them through the pain, they're usually trying to make things more comfortable for themselves. What they're trying to say is, your grief is kind of freaking me out, so if you could get it under control, I'd feel a lot better about myself, so stop it. At this point, it becomes obligatory, I think, to mention the 1969 research by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her groundbreaking book on death and dying. Now, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did her research right here at the University of Chicago back in the late 60s. She had a fleet of students in her psychiatry department that would go and interview people. And uh, as a result of those interviews, she came up with a catalog of a variety of grief expressions. In fact, initially there were five, and you've maybe heard them, or you maybe you can say them. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. She later updated her schema and made it seven areas of grief. It was now shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing, and acceptance. And there is also an eighth stage of grief. It's um, relief on the part of friends, because you finally got over it and came to your senses so we can go to lunch. I think it's important to note that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying actually has a longer title, and we pay very little attention to the stuff after the colon in the title. It's On Death and Dying, what dying, what the dying have to teach doctors, nurses, clergy, and their families. This was not about the grief of those who were left behind. This was about the grief of those who had just been informed that they had terminal cancer. And it was their experience that Kubler-Ross wanted to share with doctors and nurses and clergy and family to make them better listeners to terminally ill patients. But once she published it, off everybody went and created these categories of grief being a process. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross never actually talked about it as a sequence of events. But, you know, when you hear a list, you suddenly turn it into bullet points and so on more than one occasion, I've talked to somebody who was grieving the loss of a loved one and, and say, I'm not sure that I did enough bargaining, so I don't think I can get to acceptance. But I digress. 
Let's get back to Lazarus and his two angry sisters. Suffice it to say that I take great comfort at funerals that nobody really listened to Jesus either. And oh, by the way, we never asked when Jesus wept, what was his stage of grief? Was he in depression? Was he in bargaining? It doesn't look like acceptance to me. Maybe he was in denial. We don't do that when Jesus wept, nor should we do that when our friends weep. The fact of this, losing a loved one is messy. Death is always rude. It comes with its own schedule. It does not care who or what you are doing. When he or she or they arrive, death comes at its own pace and speed. And while those who have died may be relieved of their struggle and their pain and their sorrow, the loving living are going to hurt like hell. Grief is about the relationship with the one who has been lost. And grief, I have come to learn, is proportional to the unworked out residue in that relationship. Grief is proportional to the unworked out residue in the relationship. In all death there is sorrow. Jesus wept. But grief is that clot of feelings and emotion that have everything to do with what was or was not complete in our relationship to the one who has died. That's why at funerals, sometimes the loudest mourners are the most estranged participants. Because death is the ultimate conversation stopper and it creates a void when there was really more to say. You and I have been to that wake, right? Where the estranged son is beating his breast and sitting there and sobbing and crying out over and over again. And your thought is, wow, he's putting on a show now. Maybe he could have called his mom when she was sick over the last year and now he thinks he deserves attention. No, that's exactly what's going on. The conversation is over. And the sense of reconciliation has disappeared. And so the proportional grief is large and deep and sore. The simple words that could have made that grief not so deep and I'm sorry or I forgive you or can we talk about what happened or I love you or We never really talked about that time that I was a jerk, and I think we need to catch up on that. When these things are unsaid and unresolved and unfinished, grief can be deep and long and hauntingly painful. But when the estrangement has been resolved and love has been expressed and accounts are clear and they're short, the sorrow is there, but the grief is light and easy to bear. Mary and Martha were pretty angry about the loss of their brother, and they make their anger clear to Jesus because he was supposed to be with them and still alive. We don't know what unworked out residue they had in their relationship between two sisters and a brother, but it's clear that they were not pleased with his untimely death. 
we can only presume that they were far less angry many years later when Lazarus died the second time. We don't know. We don't have that story either. But it might be useful to think that some things got resolved when they recognized the mortality was always in the frame. What we do have is this account of a fantastical story about the revivification of Lazarus. And we can turn it into an allegory or a metaphor or a parable about being freed from the bindings of human mortality or a precursor to the resurrection which will happen just a few weeks later on Easter. But none of these applications or interpretations or lessons are, are given to us by the Gospel writer John. He doesn't say that, well, this is this, and this means that, and so we understand it this way. What we have here is just a bizarre image of a resurrected guy still wrapped in grave cloths, hopping out of the tomb because arms and legs and face are wrapped. And what we have is someone who could not resist the call of Jesus' voice. Even death could not keep Lazarus from responding to the call of Christ. And whatever else someone may be feeling about the reality of dying or death, the one thing Jesus wants us to hear above all the therapy or the consoling cards or the well-meaning mutterings that awake, the one thing Jesus wants us to hear are the words that he shared with his disciples on his own resurrection do not be afraid. Jesus never says, stop crying. Or pull yourself together. Or get over it. Jesus just says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of death. Do not be afraid of grief. Do not be afraid. And John, who gave us this Gospel account here about Lazarus in the 11th chapter of his Gospel, also said in his first recorded letter, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. That's what our grieving friends need to know. Not that somehow their grief is disproportional to their experience. Not that they should already be feeling something else and shouldn't be stuck where they are. Not that they shouldn't be so ridiculously, annoyingly loud in front of fence. And no, all they need to hear is the words that Christ gives, and that is, they are loved. They are loved. And these words, do not be afraid, are far deeper than any theological reflection. They are the lived experience of love. It is the community of faith gathering out those who are in depths of sorrow from loss and grief and not trying to fix them, but simply actively loving them. Not trying to give them some theological lesson about ontological anxiety or the face of the reality of mortality and a living God who takes us beyond this life into life eternal, but something far more meaningful, like a plate of cookies or a casserole 
for a hug. Or just sitting quietly with your mouth shut is the physical manifestation of presence and care. It's doing exactly what Paul said to the church of Rome. Do not set your mind on flesh. That's death. But set your mind on the Spirit. That's life and peace. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who, those who arise, who rose Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through His Spirit that dwells within you. And what is that Spirit? What brings that life and that peace even in the depths of sorrow and loss or shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing, acceptance? It is this! And it is only this. Do not be afraid. You are loved. Amen. Amen. Please stand and join with me in our affirmation of faith, the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and thus he shall find his life.